0: So I was watching the kids, both services this morning, this mindful fact that, you know, it's all the dignitaries and all the kings and prime ministers and presidents in this world who should be waving palm branches and praising Almighty God, but they don't. And God is just as happy to receive His praise from children, amen? And He wants it from a heart like a child of innocence and trust and sincerity. He wants that from us too, and I was also just thinking how much I appreciate all, of, all the adults who volunteer in our children's ministry. It's such a, such a joy to make a difference in kids' lives, whether it's on Sundays or on Wednesdays. Wanna. I just want to thank all of you who invest your time in the hearts and lives of our children our youth. Well, we're in our series, When Love Comes to Town. Love is God. God is love. So we've been referring to Jesus as love. We've talked about the power of love. We've talked about how to access that power through faith. Last weekend we talked about how love exercises itself through service. This morning I want to talk about what happens when love is betrayed. Not just Jesus when he experienced betrayal. But what's it like for you and I when our love, the love we try to exercise, gets betrayed. And then next weekend, the end of our series, the triumph of love. That is the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray as we start. Father, just pray that you open our minds and our hearts our thinking, and our feeling, to be in tune with your spirit and the truth of your word. As we confront some issues today, Lord, that are painful, perhaps, in our lives, may our emotions not hold sway over us, but may the truth, as your Holy Son said, set us free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles out, turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark, where we have been on our journey I'm going to be there a few minutes this morning and I want us to look at Mark chapter 14 and we're going to start our story at verse 12. Mark 14 12. On the first day at the festival of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb is sacrificed Jesus' disciples asked him where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them and the Bible makes it clear in another gospel that it was Peter and John into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything, just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve disciples. The Passover was that time of remembering when God delivered Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians who had held them in slavery for 400 years. Remember, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so God sent plagues amongst the Egyptians. And the more plagues God sent, it seemed that the harder Pharaoh's heart grew until that last plague. When God sent the angel of death. And any doorpost, any house with a doorpost in all of Egypt that did not have blood smeared on it from an unblemished male lamb. Experienced the death of their firstborn. Just as Egypt had taken the male children, early on, remember when Moses showed up and had killed them. Now God, in his judgment, was taking their firstborn. And so all of Israel gathered in their homes and they took the lamb and they slaughtered the male lamb unblemished. They took that blood and they smeared it on their doorposts. And when the angel of death came over Egypt, every doorpost of blood on it was exempted and God's judgment passed over and life was not taken The next day, however, the weeping, the howling was great among the Egyptians, for they had lost their firstborn, and then finally Pharaoh let God's people go. Here in this story, the greatest Passover ever, and there will be never another Passover like it again, God brings his lamb, who will be slaughtered, and his blood, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of love will be smeared on the cross. And everyone who puts their faith, not in the cross, but in Jesus who died on the cross. And what he did on the cross is exempted from God's judgment, is forgiven, and has eternal life. Amen? I hope you know that this morning. I hope you have that eternal life. And so Jesus gathers in preparation for his impending suffering and death in the upper room and as they gather they are going to celebrate the Passover meal together and he's going to give new meaning to it by his own life and his own blood that we sacrifice there would have been three tables short tables only one maybe two feet off the ground arranged in a horseshoe shape with an opening on one end now it's really important that you and I visualize the scene and get it clear and kind of get rid of our cultural references to tables and chairs Because it will help you understand the rest of the stories that we're going to look at. So in those days, they did not sit at high tables like we sit at today. And they didn't use chairs when they sat at those tables. For them to think about sitting at a table the way we do would seem humorous. It would seem awkward to them. It would just seem to not make sense. Why would you have a high table and, and why would you want a chair there? It just doesn't work. As you'll see from this video clip from the Passion of the Christ, a little humor. Watch this. <laughs> Yeshua. Yeshua. Ah. Ray. Tina. Hi, the man, eh? Huh? I'm Nash Karathir. Ratsi mekal. i i Okay, so, the way they sat those days were at low tables like this. And instead of chairs, they had cushions. All kinds of cushions. And what they would do is they would gather their cushions up like this. And as they approached the table, imagine three of them now, three tables, twelve men. They would have gathered around them. And they always, by tradition, placed the left hand on the cushion... In the right hand, they would then eat. Their feet extended outward. I want you to keep that picture in your mind because it's going to help the text make sense. And by the way, that's why in John 13 it says that uh, John, the disciple, beloved, laid his head against the breast of Jesus to speak to him. Well, if Jesus is right behind John and they're all laying there eating this way, all John would simply do is turn over to speak to Jesus and his head would be on his chest. So I want you to keep that picture in mind and imagine that all 12 men and Jesus, including, that's 13, all of them are around the table here. And their feet are extended and they're eating their meal. Now with that in mind, take your Bibles now and turn over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22. Let's pick up the story there. Verse 14. It says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Now do you, hear, now do you see them? Not in chairs, right? But reclining. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat the Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Remember the Exodus? Remember the blood on the doorpost? With my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die, but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him. The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? Can you imagine sitting there that night? And having Jesus announced that one of you is going to betray him, I imagine their eyes just darted around those three tables. Who is it? Maybe it's Peter, he's unpredictable. Maybe it's Thomas, always doubting. Maybe, maybe it's Simon the Zealot, kind of a political, rebellious type. But only two men knew that night who it really was. One was Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the other was Judas. But before Judas gets up and leaves to complete the betrayal process, Jesus demonstrates the most powerful act of love that an individual could ever demonstrate toward another. An act of love that he then calls all of his followers to model In their lives and relationships as well. It's described for us over in John 13. But before we get there. Something happens. That precipitates it. That starts it. It's almost unbelievable. But it's written and it actually took place. After hearing that somebody around the table. Was going to betray him. And the disciples wondering if it were one of them. They lapsed into an argument. And the argument is defined for us in verse 24. It says, then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Can you imagine that? It's not like this is the first time either. I mean, if you go back to Mark chapter 9, where we've been the last couple of weeks, you'll discover that Jesus, right after announcing to his disciples that he's going to die, heard them arguing on the road and confronted them about it and said to them, look, it's not about who's the greatest. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. And then a couple chapters later, in Mark chapter 10, a few days later, remember uh, James and John and the mother came to Jesus and said, if it's all right with you, we'd like, I'd like to have one of my sons sit on your left side, one of my sons sit on your right hand like vice presidents on either side. And remember when the other ten disciples heard about it, it says they became indignant or became angry and upset. And once again, Jesus had just finished talking about the fact he was going to die, he was going to suffer, be beat up, be spit upon. He has to take them aside and one more time remind them that the Son of Man, by his own example, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And they have to do the same thing. Well, here Jesus is just about ready to enter into a horrible time of suffering, beatings, and death. He's already mentioned that one of them is going to betray him. And they lapse right back in the same deal again. Who's gonna be the greatest? What is it gonna to take to shake them loose from their desire for power, stature, significance as the world looks at it? What's it gonna to take to change their hearts so that they really become the servant leaders that Jesus wants them to be? What's it take in our lives to free us up from our pursuit of power as the world portrays power? And to get us to exercise power the way Christ wants us to exercise it. In John chapter 13, we have the illustration of how it's done. And I'm just going to talk to you about it. You can read about it on your own a little bit later on. I imagine somewhere, uh, at some time during the meal, while the disciples are arguing about. Who should sit on the left and who should sit on the right? And How come John got to sit there and I didn't get to sit there? How come I'm always across the table? How come he gets to be right next to Jesus? As you're going through all that stuff, Jesus gets up from the table and he slips away. I think these guys are so engrossed, they really don't notice it. Maybe until they hear some things rattling. There's a towel that Jesus took out. He wrapped his around his waist. I'll put mine over my shoulder. He grabs a pitcher that had water. He takes a basin. And I'm guessing at some point, one of the disciples looked over, probably sitting the opposite way. Saw Jesus do that. Nudged the other disciple and said, like that. Next one goes, like that. Until you have a domino effect around the table. And these guys are looking back going, oh no. Awkward moment. Very silent. Jesus has just walked over to take these vessels that were placed there for the custom that was offered in every home that the lowliest slave had to perform. That was the washing of the feet of the guests, get rid of the dirt and the dust on their feet between their toes as just a way of remembering them, showing honor to them, and letting them feel clean. Not one of those men had bothered to take on that task not because they forgot about it. But why are men, why would men who are arguing about who's going to be the greatest, why would they mess with doing something that was, a, that was an example of the lowliest, that a slave, the lowliest slave would do? So you can imagine these guys kind of all walking by this, you know, and they come in the room and they look at it and they think to themselves, I'm not going to do that. Next one walks in, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, all 12, boom, 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 boom. I'm not going to do that. Nobody does it. Jesus gets up and he doesn't. And he doesn't do it with an attitude. He doesn't do it with, you know, I'll show you guys and then dump the water over their heads, right? What's the matter with you guys? You know, why don't you learn for a change? No, I think he did it with gentleness. I think he did it with grace. I think he did it with sincerity. But he did it to finally try to break them loose and demonstrate What it means to experience and know the power of God's love. So here's Jesus. He takes the pitcher, the water, the basin. And he goes around and he washes all the disciples' feet. All of their feet get washed by his grace. By his love. By his goodness. Even Judas' feet get washed. Because before Judas can walk out and uh, tell the, you know, and, and, and perform the betrayal, Jesus will wash his feet. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If you had been Jesus, could you have done that? Could you have washed their feet? Can you wash the feet of somebody who forgets about you? who knows your master, who knows your Lord, who knows you're about to suffer and sacrifice yourself, and they ignore you, could you wash their feet? It's hard sometimes to to have good thoughts toward people who ignore us, don't appreciate us, don't show common courtesy and love for us. I say, I guess you could do it. Yeah, probably, I mean... I suppose it wouldn't be too hard to wash the feet of John the Beloved. It wouldn't be too hard to wash the feet of Andrew, James, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, Philip. How do you wash the feet of Peter and Judas? I don't know if I could have washed the feet of Peter. Because Jesus knows, love knows, that Peter is going to go out and deny Jesus. Here's Peter who says to Jesus, you can trust me. If they are going to come and take you, it will be over my dead body. I will defend you. if they do take you, I will die with you. You will not be alone on that cross. And Jesus kept saying, Peter, you cannot back up what you're going to say. You're going to deny me. I know you are. You're going to do it. No way, Lord. I will not deny you. You can trust me. And when the moment came, remember what Peter did? When the moment came to take a stand with Jesus, to suffer and die with Jesus, what did Peter do? He denied him. Not once, not twice, three times. Swore, Cursed. I don't know him. Don't know who he is. Just observing, just watching what's going on. Blank, 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 blank. But it's really hard to wash the feet of somebody who says they'll be there for you and they don't show up. Like your spouse, like your parents, like your kids, like your friends, like your boss, like your co workers, like your business partners. They all have good intentions. They make all kinds of promises, but then they don't fulfill those promises. And when the heat is on, in that moment, you end up staying there all by yourself when they said they'd be right there with you. It's really hard to wash the feet of people who break your trust. I don't know if you watched uh, the 2010 Olympics, but uh, the Netherlands, uh, kind of their sport Uh, is speed skating. Speed skating is to the Netherlands as football or baseball would be to us. And a skater by the name of Sven Kramer uh, did an outstanding job at the Winter Olympics. First he won the 5,000 meter gold medal, right? Yay, Sven. All right? And then then he um, he competed in a 10,000 meter speed skating race, 25 laps around the ring. And... And he won. In fact, he set an Olympic record. Kramer did it in 12 minutes, .45.50 seconds. Four seconds ahead of the second place person. So, an outstanding job. And so he gets a second gold medal. At least he thinks that he does. And he will be a national hero in the Netherlands because of his accomplishment. And then his coach, Gerard Kemper, walks out to him. And informs him that he's been disqualified. Because he changed lanes with only eight laps to go. Now normally, Kramer would never do that. But his coach kept pointing and saying, change lanes, change lanes. I mean, never before had the coach ever asked Kramer to do something like that. But for some reason, the, the coach had kind of lost his mind. or was in another, you know, another universe someplace because he told him to switch lanes. So, not only was Kramer disqualified, but he was disqualified because the coach that he trusted told him to change the lane. Kemper, the coach, says that in that moment when he realized what he had done and what had taken place, he says, It was the worst moment in my life. He said, My whole world came crashing in, and not just mine, but the, the world of my skater. It was something that he would never, ever forget the rest of his life, that I would never forget the rest of my life. And Kramer was angry, as you might imagine. I mean, he trusted his coach. And his coach misled him. Peter said, trust me. And he failed. Who told you to trust them? And they let you down. Who said they'd be there? And they didn't show up. I mean, it's a classic example, isn't it? Of why you should never trust anybody. Some of us have a hard time with that. But you know, after Peter did that, it says he went out and he wept, what? Bitterly. He cried his heart out. And you know something? If you know the story, you know that Jesus, what? Jesus forgave him. Told him ahead of time he would forgive him wrapped his arms around him, loved Peter back into fellowship again, and then deployed him after the resurrection as one of his chief apostles. It's a beautiful story. If you know the Olympic story, you'll find out that the very next day, Kramer forgave his coach. and told the press, he said, you know, we've had so many wins together, I'm not going to let this stop our relationship. I'm not going to let this stop the future. They're reconciled. You know, when people come to us after blowing it and they tell us they're sorry, and they say they're sorry that they didn't live up to the promise, they're sorry that they let us down, they're sorry they didn't show up, it was a moment of fear, they're frustrated, they're confused, whatever. I think we can forgive. I mean, we as Americans tend to be very forgiving in the first place compared to a lot of places in the world. And so maybe it's not so hard then to take the picture of the bowl and the towel and wash the feet of a weeping Peter who's so sorry for what he has done and restore them into relationship But I got another question for you how do you wash the feet of Judas who doesn't deny you but betrays you premeditated thinks about it then sells you down the river so to speak How do you wash his feet? How do you wash the feet of the man that you know is going to sell you to your enemy and then lead your enemy to where you are for 30 lousy pieces of silver? I don't know if you've read the book called Resilience by Elizabeth Edward, the wife of John Edward, the senator, who uh, attempted to run for presidency in this last attempt. Was found out to have been unfaithful, and it kind of derailed his whole desire to be president. But in her book, she talks about how important faithfulness was to her. That she marry a man who would be faithful to her. And John said when they married that he would be faithful to her. See, when she was a teenager growing up at home, she came across a journal in her mother's home. And she opened her mother's journal up and read in the journal how her mother suspicioned her father, Elizabeth's dad, of being unfaithful. But Elizabeth's mother never confronted her husband about it and lived with that nagging sense that she had a husband who was unfaithful. And it really stung Elizabeth's soul so that when she grew up and got married, she wanted a husband that would be faithful to her. And she made it very clear to John. And John was, and she says that for the longest time she had no doubts of his faithfulness. In 2005, when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, he stood there by her side. In 2006, she told him to go out and get on the campaign trail, and that's where he met this woman and began this affair. I am going to read to you Elizabeth's response to the whole situation when it finally came out and things came unraveled. She writes, after I cried and screamed, I went to the bathroom and threw up. And the next day, John and I spoke. He wasn't coy, but it turned out he wasn't forthright either. So much has happened that it is sometimes hard for me to gather my feelings in that moment. I felt that the ground underneath me had been pulled away. I wanted him to drop out of the race, protect our family from this woman, from this act. I was afraid of her. I spent months learning to live with what I thought was a single incidence of infidelity. And I would like to say that a single incidence is easy to overcome, but it is not. I am who I am. I am imperfect in a million ways. But I always thought I was the kind of woman, the kind of wife, to whom a husband would be faithful. I had asked for fidelity, begged for it, really, when we married. I never needed flowers or jewelry. I don't care about vacations or a nice car. But I needed him to be faithful. Leave me if he must. But be faithful to me if he was with me. How do you love, how do you wash the feet of somebody who betrays you? A cheating spouse. A boyfriend or girlfriend who dumps you. A business partner who runs off with the prophets. A mother, a father who walk out of the family. Somebody who abuses you. How do you wash the feet of a Judas in your life? That's what Jesus said. He washed the feet of Judas. Not with vindictiveness, not with anger, not with hatred, but with love. In fact, John chapter 13 Begins this way. It says in that passage. Before the Passover celebration. Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world. And return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. Including Judas. In fact when Judas comes for him in the garden. To betray him. The final act. Jesus calls him friend. And it was not sarcasm. How do you wash the feet of a Judas? Jesus tells his disciples later on John chapter 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So that all men may know that you're my disciples. You notice know, what we saying to them is look you want to talk about greatness. Here's greatness. Wash everybody's feet in your life including the Judas that you run into. And when men see you do that they'll know there's something different about you. They'll know there's a love in you that's unlike any love the world can manufacture. See, how did Jesus do that? Well, first of all, he could do that because he was secure in his Father's love. He was so secure in his Father's love. John 5 talks about it. John 17 talks about it. He knew his Father loved him, and he loved his Father. His security was not based on the love of men. I know it's important that we experience love for one another. I want my wife to love me. I want to love my wife. But ultimately, my security cannot be tied up in her or anybody else's love. It must ultimately be tied up in the love of God. Why? Because Jesus knew the heart of men. He knew how deceitful, how untrusting, and how wicked our hearts are. Jeremiah seventeen nine talks about it. Our hearts are so wicked, who can understand it? We are going to fail each other. It happens whether we like it or not. And sometimes it is painful and it stings deeply. So ultimately, my trust has to be pinned in God. And Jesus was so clear in his mission. And what was his mission? His mission was to reconcile men with his Father. That's what he was all about. Reconciling the Peters and the Judases of life with the love of God. Of course, Peter and Judas can reject that. Of course, Peter and Judas say they want nothing to do with it. And they suffer the consequences for it. Or they can repent and be reconciled. See, Pastor, I don't know if I can stand, if I, if I could wash the feet of the Judas in my life. And this is really painful. If I knew you were going to talk about this, I would have stayed home today. And I know it's painful. But you, you see, if you don't do it, if you don't get there, your only alternative is to spend the rest of your life in bitterness. And bitterness is like a cancer that will eat you from the inside out. It destroys your life. How can, I, how can I wash the feet of that person who did that awful thing to me? Not once, maybe twice, or whatever it is. How do you expect me to do that? For my father who walked out on me, for my, my spouse who cheated on me, for my, you know, my cousin or whoever that abused me. How do you expect me to do that? I don't expect you to do that. You can't do that. But God can do that through you. It's letting God be himself through us. And that doesn't happen overnight. Please don't misunderstand me. It's not like you go, okay, I'll just go ahead and do that. It's over. Felt good. It's a process. Sometimes it takes years to get to that place where we can let go of the bitterness and we can be forgiving. Now, Somebody confronted me in the last, after the last service and said to me, How can you just walk up to somebody and forgive them? And, and it's like they get a free pass for what they've done. And that's totally misunderstanding forgiveness and repentance. See, I offer forgiveness, that person cannot receive it till they repent. See what I'm trying to say? Repentance is what allows us to accept and receive forgiveness. But here's the problem. Most of us won't offer it till somebody comes and repents first. That's not how God works. God offers forgiveness, which opens the door for repentance. I can accept it, or I can reject it. I can take it, or I can suffer the consequences. Same thing is true in your life and my life. We can present forgiveness to people. They can't receive it till they, till they repent. And so it becomes a double judgment on them. Now i got to walk around and realize, oh my goodness, I've been confronted with my sin. It would be like me going to somebody who's hurt me and saying, I need to let you know what you did hurt me deeply. It stung. You betrayed my trust. You hurt me deeply. And I don't want to live in bitterness. So by God's grace, I want you to know that I extend forgiveness towards you. Now that person stands here and they go, am I going to repent and receive? Or will I now become hardened and doubly judged? Now I'm free to walk away and say, that's not going to plague me anymore. I'm done with it. God loves me. And I just exercise His grace. See, that was truth and love. See what happened there? So what if that person repents? They repent. They don't have to become your best friend. Don't misunderstand me. If they repent, it may be the end of the relationship. But at least it's finished there at that point And animosity is gone. So say, well, how do I know to they repent? Well, just as it takes you time to learn to forgive, it's going to take time for them to prove their repentance. And I'm not into this stuff where I say I'm sorry and then that's the end of it. The Bible says, by their fruit you shall know them and certain, you know, in certain situations. And when that person repents, we still need to be filled with grace. But before any trust can ever be formed again, there has to be time to see is repentance real? And you can always tell when repentance is real because there's a change of what? Change of heart, change of life, change of attitude. But here's the deal today. If you want to experience the love of God, if you want to be filled with the love of God, if you want the power of God to flow through you, then you must be able to get to that place in your life where you can wash the feet of the Peter and the Judas in your life. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard, hard lesson today. This is not Christian fluff, Christian ease. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where, Father, we cannot do it on our own. We need your strength. We need your power. We need your grace. And for some of us this morning, this has been painful, God. For we are reminded of the people in our lives who have denied us or who have betrayed us. And truth be told, oh God, there's a bitterness in us toward them. An anger, maybe even a hatred. And it's killing us. It's ruining our lives. And we ask you to forgive us. Because Lord, every one of us was sitting around the table that night. And you washed our feet too. So God, I'm praying that you'll take that love and forgiveness and just channel it through our lives to the Peter and the Judas in our lives. And free us up, Lord, from, from the pain. And free us up from the bitterness and the anger. And Lord, we pray that we could somehow bring them into reconciliation with yourself. For Lord, you told us in your holy word that we are to love our enemies. what good is our faith if we only love the people who are lovable? So, Holy Spirit, I just pray, work in our hearts and work in our lives and bring us to that point where we can be real Christians. We can show the world the power of God's love. Now, I know this morning this has probably been painful for some of you, and in a moment we close, I'm going to ask my prayer partners to come to the front And I encourage you to come forward and let them pray for you if you need some hope and some encouragement and some healing. Let them pray power into your life. Let them pray encouragement around your spirit. But don't let your life be driven by bitterness and anger, hatred. Let Jesus, let Jesus wash your feet. And let him wash the feet of others through you. In Jesus' name.